The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World Discover hope and healing from the other side. Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Listen, they're all around you, close as a thought or a memory. Messages of Hope. Messages of Hope. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back back to another week of talking about my favorite topic, the afterlife, the the entire ever life, as my guides told us to talk about this ongoing existence of our life. The Daily Way message this morning was all about how we don't leave our loved ones behind. They don't leave us behind. We're moving forward with them. And my guest today can attest to that. I will tell you that just as the music started, I, I was tuning in to see if I felt his son, and I know this from reading his book, but I heard sax man, loud as could be. And I know that uh, my my guest, Casey Gaunt, knows what that means. Casey, welcome to the show. We'll tell everybody who you are in just a second, but welcome. Thank you, Suzanne. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about you and your story and your son, Jimmy, across the veil. And like I said, I know from the book that he played the saxophone, but it's it's been a week or so since I read the book. And to hear that shouted in my ear just lets me know that he's going to be inspiring us today as well. It would it would be unlike him not to show up. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> he, yes. he, he is. Uh, yeah, he's. He's not shy, let me put it that way. All right. Well, many of the wonderful listeners who tune in week after week have a child across the veil, but many have uh, other loved ones, and they want to know that they're here. And I know that your story will help us to understand that you've come to know that our loved ones who passed are here. But you didn't always know that, did you? I did not. No, not at all. Why don't you tell us about your background? Well, I um, uh, grew up in a uh, suburb of Chicago and, you know, had a very, you know, normal, very nice childhood. Um, I was always a great student, Um, um, you know, finished number two in my high school class and got a uh, prestigious scholarship to go to the University of Southern California. Um, We... um, um, uh, education was really important in our house, household. My dad, who was um, uh, a big proponent of it and pretty strict, he always would tell me, you know, and remind me what I'm in school for. And um, and you know, I did really well uh, in school. That was a priority for me. Went to law school um, 
at the University of Southern California got you know, my law degree and an MBA uh, within mm-hmm. three years, and then mm-hmm. embarked on um, a career practicing uh, corporate law, uh, started in Los Angeles, and then moved down to San Diego in 1979, uh, where our two children were born, uh, Brittany the first, our daughter, uh, and then Jimmy came along in 1983. Um, the, the spiritual world was uh, not in my vocabulary um, or within my realm of imagination until mm-hmm. 2008. Um, I should say that uh, my father, um, who was the strongest man I knew, a highly decorated uh, army officer in World War II, fought in the South Pacific for two years, was the youngest major to achieve that rank in the South mm-hmm. Pacific um, he was awarded two bronze stars and a legion of merit um, for heroic and uh, extraordinary meritorious service. Um, but I know that my dad, um, you know, sought a lot, did a lot, and brought back wounds that we really couldn't see. Um, mm-hmm. He was in some of the fiercest fighting Um both in the Solomon Islands, and then he was part of the attack force uh, on Luzon, Philippines, um, in 1944. So he was the strongest man I knew. Um, he was tough. Um, he was smart. Um, he was you know, just a robust, one of the first physical fitness nuts. He was jogging before that was ever popular back uh-huh. in the in the 60s, um, and then. In 1970, uh, right before Christmas, um, my dad died by suicide. Yeah, that's it's and just shocking to read that in your story. Yeah, it was it was beyond shocking. It wasn't. I knew I knew my dad was down. I knew that he was you know battling some uh, company financial problems and. Um, um, but his his death just took us all, you know, by surprise and really floored us. Um, uh, particularly my older brother and my younger sister, who was 13 at the time. I was 20 years old, um, and um, my mother, uh, who was extraordinarily strong, um, her mantra was, "All right, we're not going to uh, let this take us down." We're not going to talk about it. We're going to move forward, and we're going to put it behind us. And that's what we did. Mm. Um, And uh, I'll never forget the first Christmas um, after. It was one year later, and my mom said, well, we – because my dad died on December 22nd. My mom says, well, we know what today is, and we're not going to talk about it. Wow, you know, um, I think back to the shows we've done, like with Tom Zuba and talking about grief and how important it is to feel those feelings. And back when this happened in 1970, I'm I'm sure that that was more of the attitude. It was. It really was. And, you know, my mom didn't know any better. I mean, she was being as strong as she possibly could. Um, I know my, my younger sister uh, did get some therapy. Uh, I didn't. My older brother didn't. Um, but... Um, and they they suffered mightily. Um, they were they were hospitalized. I mean they they were you know really beat up. 
I somehow was spared, and it was because of my first angel. Um, Mm. Three months after my dad died, I met Hilary Tedrow, um, who was the reigning Helen of Troy at USC. That's like prom queen, uh, homecoming queen, uh, Miss California combined, okay? I mean, it (laughs) it was a big deal, and... I was just miraculously introduced to her, and we hit it off. We fell in love, um, and we were married uh, two and a half years later. She, you know, I want to interrupt you because I was sent yeah. a biography by my assistant, Lynette, and she said, she wrote in, in your biography, you wrote, Casey and Hillary, his wife and best friend of 47 years. That just warmed my heart. <laughs> she is. I mean, she, she just is. And um, uh, so, but... Again, that I mean, that was a beautiful thing, but it didn't really help me with my dad because, um, of course, I told Hillary about my dad, but I didn't talk about it. I didn't. Um, when I came back to school um, after uh, that Christmas vacation, quote, vacation, uh, after my dad died, I told two people, two fraternity brothers said he died by suicide. Everybody else, I said heart attack because I couldn't face it. Yeah. I couldn't admit it. It scared the heck out of me. And we can just state also for so many people who have not been down the path that you and I have been, when you don't have the tools, when you don't have the awareness that there is a greater reality, that everybody is okay who passes, you you just handle it however you can. And boy, that's tough. It, it really is. And, you know, I think fortunately today we're, in a much better place as far as um, um, dealing with grief and helping others with grief. We still got a lot long way to go, but um, um, you know, 40 years ago, it was um, just not as prevalent. And so, again, the way I handled my father's passing was I put him as far away from my memory as possible. I I just wanted to forget him. Because that way, I thought I could forget uh, the pain and the you know the, the the turmoil he created for my family. Part of that that process was uh, my mom and sister. Two weeks after uh, my dad's death, moved from the Chicago suburb back to California to move in with her parents. So we ran out of my hometown. I abandoned all my childhood friends. I cut them off because. Again, they were part of the memory, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. um, my so you know, fast forward 2008, my life's great. Um, otherwise, um, you know, I've got two wonderful kids. Um, uh, they've uh, they've both graduated from USC. Um, my law practice is thriving. Um, uh, my son has. Um, spent the last two years, he graduated in 2006, he was a dual major in English and Spanish, Um, and he's now pursuing his writing career in Hollywood, writing plays and screenplays. During college, he wrote five plays and two screenplays. Two of his plays were put on by the USC Theater Department, Um, one of which, called Leather-Clad Chaperone, he composed the music for and the featured instrument in the play is a saxophone. Saxophone. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> ding, 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 right? Um, 
and he was so proud of that play. And that was the first play he wrote. And um, and uh, he had studied uh, for eight years uh, from fourth grade all through high school with one of the jazz greats, a guy named uh, Tony Ortega. And, um, you know, Jimmy was a phenomenal saxophone player, but writing was his passion. And so he's like, he had just signed with the talent agency, had just completed ghostwriting a screenplay for a major Hollywood director. Can I interrupt you just a second? I'm going to go out on a limb here. I am getting these sharp pains in my left arm in a place where I don't normally. Is somebody in your immediate family, are you having some challenge with your arm? I don't think so. Okay, no. I might go with Jimmy, but this definitely feels like a spirit thing. <laughs> well, okay. I hope it's not you. <laughs> no, I don't think You're it's me. Okay. The way it feels, it's not okay. a, It's an electrical okay. thing. <laughs> you know what's interesting, though? I, I have been having a pain in my upper back uh, hmm. for the, like the hmm. last two months. So, and uh, I think I pulled a muscle water skiing, but um, uh, anyway, that... I don't know. Okay, I don't know. It. I, hmm. Okay, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> okay, so, you can get back to your story um, with Jimmy. Um, so he came home uh, for a visit um, down here in Solana Beach, where we live, just north of San Diego. And um, he went out that night. Um, he had dropped off for us his latest draft of his uh, screenplay, "Now's the Time," uh, which takes place actually during the mid '60s. And it centers around the uh, the first draft lottery that we we had to send boys to Vietnam, uh, which he thought was completely crazy, but you know it was true. But anyway, um, uh, and he said, "Hey, look, you know, I, I'm going to be with some friends, and I may not uh, get home. I may spend the night with somebody. So, you know, if I don't see you later, I'll you know see you tomorrow morning." Um, Eight o'clock the next morning, we get a knock on the door. And there is the San Diego, San Diego County Medical Examiner and a deputy sheriff to let us know that early that morning, about 5 a.m., Jimmy was walking on Del Dio's Highway, um, which is kind of close to where we live, and he was accidentally struck and killed by an automobile. Um, and I felt like the floor just disappeared. Um, I also felt like something got ripped out of me. I mean, I physically felt something get ripped out of me. um, And I knew immediately that my life was changed forever. Um, And Brittany, our daughter, was with us uh, at the time because her husband was up um, fishing in Alaska. uh, So we were together when we got the news. Um, Absolutely devastated, uh, of course. Um, But Hillary, my wife, said the very next day when we were on a hike, she said, look, we will not let Jimmy's death take us down Hmm. because that would make him so unhappy, and we are not going to make him unhappy. And that kind of set the tone. Um, And I love that she said that because we can say that and – Say it hypothetically. If they could see us, that would make them unhappy. But it's it's an actuality. They do see us unhappy, and they yes. actually don't get unhappy, but they they wish us the best. And it's it's amazing that they truly, absolutely, do not want us to be unhappy. So that 
She it's knew so that. It's so true. And, and Jimmy came through, and we could talk about it as well, but he came through in several readings. that He always comes through in our readings that we've had mm-hmm. with uh, several mediums. And on a couple of occasions, he's just said how sorry he was. He made some bad decisions that night. He had too much to drink. He liked to walk uh, when he was um, intoxicated, and he was at a friend's house, and he decided to uh, you know, walk home. Well, he had a horrible sense of direction, just like his old man. And so he was, at the time, he was walking the wrong way, and it was on a very narrow, dark, no sidewalk street. And, you know, this young man was coming uh, um, to go to work at a golf course nearby and rounded the corner. And Jimmy was, you know, on too much on the street, and it's just the wrong place at the wrong time. A, a, a total accident. Um, I- and, and now I, you just mentioned that several mediums have brought him through, and I love just hearing everybody goes, "What the lawyer went to a medium, and you went to several," <laughs> and and so you know we talk about mediumship so much on this show that um, we, I think our time would be better spent rather than talking about how the mediums showed you he was around, which they did, and you detail quite beautifully in your book. I would love if we maximize our time by talking about some of the biggest wows that directly gave you the experience of Jimmy being around. And we definitely want to talk about that letter, that magical letter that you talk about in your book. You want to start there? If you feel that's best, go for it. Yeah, I think so. Because it really sets the tone. I mean, because it was the door opener. Uh, it's why I went to, it's why I was okay going to see a medium uh, a then. month later. So um, three months uh, after Jimmy died, um, I was in my law office and I get a call. Uh, it's a woman named Emily Sue Buckberry, and she's uh, calling from West Virginia. And she tells me, you know, you may not remember me, but I was in Colwood, West Virginia with you many years ago, and you left something behind that I found, and I want to return it to you. And I go, Emily Sue Buckberry, I don't remember her at all, but I remember Colwood very well, because after I graduated from high school, I went to Colwood, West Virginia to work on a construction job uh, for my family's business for the coal mines there. And if you've ever seen the movie October Sky or read the book Rocket Boys by Homer Hickam, that's where it takes place in Colwood, West Virginia. Wow. Um, And so Emily tells me, um, yeah, when you left, I went to say goodbye, but you had already uh, uh, taken off. But I went to your room, and outside there was a waste paper basket, and there was a letter and an envelope outside the waste paper basket. And I picked it up, and I saw it was a letter to you from your father. Oh, and I said it a little bit, and it was you know beautiful, but it was marked personal. And so I picked it up, and I kept it because I thought mm-hmm. I could get it back to you. And then she goes, one thing left to another, you know, got in boxes, blah, blah, blah. And so now, 40 years later, wow. my dad wrote that letter in 1968, and I never remember getting the letter, by the way. Mm. 40 years later, she calls and says, I've got this letter, and I'd like to get it to you. And she said, do you want it? Oh, no. First of all, she said, uh, do you have kids? No, it's a real light and breezy conversation. And I say, yes, we have Brittany. And then I tell her about Jimmy and all the air gets sucked out of the room. She never asked me about my dad, at least on that call. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, well, you know, uh, give me your address and I'll get this letter right off to you. I said, okay. 
Um, I wasn't so sure I wanted to get something from my dad, um, but uh, I said, fine. But when I hung up the phone, I was enveloped in goosebumps, head to toe. Mm -hmm. I felt like a electric wire had been put in the top of my head. I was just shaking. I was going, because I felt, I didn't know what was going on, but I felt something is going on here. Something is happening, and it's big. <laughs> so um, the letter doesn't come the next day. It doesn't come the next day. Um, so five days later, it's a Saturday, November 8th, and uh, my family, Hillary, Brittany, her husband, Ryan, and my mother, who's 88 at the time, we go down to the beach. Um, it was a gorgeous day in Del Mar, and my, I had brought a, a little baggie of Jimmy's ashes, and G, Brittany and I went out on boogie boards, and we spread them, and, you know, it was very nice and very emotional. Um, Why did my you mom, choose that day? I'll get to that. Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> we'll uh, uh, my mom... Um, gets tired, so I drive her home. And as I'm coming back to go to the beach, I swing by the house, I look in the mailbox, and there's the letter. And I open it up, um, and I start reading, and I start crying. Uh, oh. Initially, I, I, it was two full pages. I never read this. And my dad is confessing things to me uh, about a depression in his youth, about his fanatical religious mother, how his judgment was impaired by the war. Uh, he doesn't know if he's successful. And then he's is giving me this fatherly advice, telling me, you can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. You've got all sorts of talent. Go to work, blah, blah, blah. And just beautiful. And he closes with, I'll be around anytime you want me. I'll be there. Because I care more than you'll ever know. My son, all love, Dad. And you asked about the significance of that day, that Saturday, November 8th, the day the letter came. I cry every time I tell the story. That was Jimmy's 25th birthday. The letter mm -hmm. arrived on his birthday. Because my dad knew that was going to be one of the toughest days of my life. And he was there for me. He was with me, as he promised he would be in the letter he had written 40 years earlier. Wow. And I'm just going, oh, my God. The timing of that. You know, you know now that there, there are no oh. coincidences. Oh, no. I mean, mm. the odds of that. Uh, I mean, it's it's incalculable. No, I mean this was orchestrated, and I knew, I knew Jimmy was involved in that. I knew he needed my dad and me to start getting better, to start healing our relationship. Um, and my my psychologist told me this. I mean, I started seeing a psychologist right after, you know, six weeks six weeks after Jimmy did, because I knew I needed help. I I now had to deal with my dad and Jimmy. Yeah. Uh, and, and he said, hey, look, we will never be able to start working on Jimmy until we deal with your dad. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so that was the door opener. A month later was the first uh, reading we had with Tara, the medium from Sedona. Um, 
And Jimmy came through so big on that reading. Oh, my God. That was our first reading. And, as, as, you know, yeah, I'm this corporate lawyer who had never thought about this. That would have been the last thing I ever would have done. Sure. But were it not for this door opener with my dad's letter, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have done it. But And I'm sure that they that knew point. that and said, we got to do something in a big way yeah. to get his attention. And who they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a big jump start for me. I needed the uh, yeah, <laughs> I needed that jump start big time. Um, but then, I mean, that was the first time Jimmy came through, you know, and really apologized for putting us through what he did, and he was so apologetic and you know wanted us to know he was okay, and he's giving us all these signs, uh, you know, about you know the fact that he's over there and he's still pushing the buttons over on this side and it was just a we were it was just a healing cleansing experience and that on top of what i had received from my dad it really began to just open me up Uh, now i'm being an evidence-based medium anybody who's new to this show would have heard those beautiful messages of comfort that you got through the medium and i know they're valid but i know you also got some evidence meaning some things that the medium said that she couldn't have known that validate those messages. Do any come to mind? Absolutely. The, uh, she asked us uh, to give her things um, right when the, the reading started, uh, jewelry, uh, coins, things like that. And so I gave her this old bulky Casio, Casio watch I was wearing. And so she's holding it, and she looks at me, and she goes, where's the watch Jimmy gave you? Huh. I go, oh, my God, how do you know that? Uh, two weeks after he died, I was going through his uh, his uh, backpack that he left in you know at our house, and I found this Rolex watch. And I go, I didn't give him a Rolex watch. You know, where did he get it? Uh, we soon solved the mystery. A couple weeks later, it was given to him by a mentor uh, that he was working with up in L.A. Um, but. Um, you know, the watch was meant for me, and Tara just picked up on that immediately. Hmm. Um, and then she says, you're finding pennies, aren't you? And I go, yeah. And so I reach into my pocket, and I pull out, you know, five pennies that I had found the day before at the gym I go to. And I was, he was, I was finding these all over the place. The really funny one, though, is when Tara said to Brittany, because we did this reading together. We do, did all our readings together. Um, and Jimmy's talking, and he's telling Brittany, you know, I'm not watching you. And Brittany starts laughing hysterically. And she goes, I've been having this thing about, you know, sleeping with Ryan, and I'm thinking that Jimmy could be watching us. And so Jimmy he's in his goes, thoughts. I love Jimmy that. Goes, I'm not a pervert. Look, we have I'm to go to a walk. break. We're going you. to a break right now, but we'll be back. More stories and some great advice for you about how to write a beautiful condolence card. That's going to be a great tool for everybody. So everybody, come on back in three minutes. More with Casey Gaunt. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. 
Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome back. You're listening to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Well, that was a fast break. I've been sitting here chatting with our guest, Casey Gaunt. He is a former corporate attorney, now retired and doing writing, writing to help others heal from their grief after the passing of his son and his father. Casey, in your book, you talk about several situations where you encountered others who had had uh, children pass. And in the beginning, you were unable to even talk to them. Would you address that? Because... I'm I'm sure many listening can identify with not knowing what to say or even turning and going the other way. Yeah, um, it's it, it's it's something that that so many of us who have you know lost those we deeply love have to deal with um, uh, on a on a, almost a daily basis. But um, when I was um, you know in my 40s, um, I had a dentist that I saw you know, for 10, 15 years. Um, and I heard that uh, his four-year-old son was playing in the backyard with a friend and they were digging a cave uh, in a hillside behind their house and the cave collapsed and uh, uh, the four-year-old boy uh, suffocated. Mm. Um, and so what did I do? I went and found a new dentist. Oh, yeah. I, I couldn't talk to him. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. Um, something similar happened um, uh, just before Jimmy died. Um, a good friends of ours, well, yeah, pretty good friends of ours, um, their 18-year-old son um, died of an accidental drug overdose uh, his freshman year at USC. And so we're in like June of 2008, and I see Gary, the dad, out on Torrey Pine South Golf Course where they were holding the U.S. Open Championship. I see Gary, and I just turn around and walk away. I, I, can't, I can't talk to him. I don't know what to say. You know, Hillary experienced the same things when she would go to a grocery store, and she'd see friends. Um, and I know, Suzanne, this was in your book, too, uh, when, when you moms were talking about the very same thing. Hillary would see somebody she knew, and that person would just turn around and pretend she didn't see Hillary. And Hillary would yeah, just, it, yeah. right? It hurts. It hurts for it those hurts. of us on the receiving end of that. But you can also put yourself in the shoes of other people. And the, the thing is, it comes from ignorance, not knowing, not knowing. Right, right. Yeah. And so... One, thing, one of the things that I learned, and, 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 and some people, as you know, are extraordinarily surprising. I mean, they come right up to you, and they just say, 
I'm so sorry. You know, what can I do? Or, you know, they bring it up. But a lot don't. It is ignorance, and they think they're going to be pulling the scab off the wound, and they're going to hurt me. So one of the things that I learned fairly early on was if I saw somebody, like a friend or a colleague, um, who I hadn't seen since Jimmy died, uh, I brought it up. I brought Jimmy up. Uh, And as soon as I opened that door, I had to back up because they rushed through so fast, they Mm. couldn't wait to talk and, you know, and say what was bottled up inside them. You know, they would say, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say, but, you know, I'm so sorry. And and so that's one thing that, that we, you know, who have suffered this kind of loss, that's one thing we can do to help others help our colleagues and our friends, help start the conversation, give them permission to grieve with you. And I call that going halfway. You know, mm. just open the door. Very nice. And it's healing for you as well to talk about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's particularly bad with the dads and the guys. You know, we're supposed to stiff up our lip, uh, soldier on, get through it, um, don't show any chink in the armor. And so we're kind of wired that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but the wiring is pretty flimsy. And once, you know, you do open the door for them and, and um, start the conversation, um, it's, very, it's, it's very healing. It's beautiful. Just absolutely beautiful. Perfect. Um, I hope we do get to how to write a beautiful condolence card. If we don't get to that, the folks can find that on your website, correct? Yes. It's yeah. called, okay. um, yeah, How to Write a Beautiful Condolence Card to Someone Who Has Lost a Child. And then there's a companion post, um, uh, writing a condolence card to someone who has loved a loved one, lost a loved one to uh, suicide. Oh, very helpful. So we may get to that, but I would like to focus for a few minutes on some more of the beautiful, magical, it's not magic at all. It's just reality <clears throat> signs from Jimmy. Like Something happened at a wedding. Yes. Um, so uh, Jimmy's best friend, um, um, since he was a baby, uh, John, um, was um, – Uh, getting married, and this is two years ago, and John called me up and he asked me, he said, you know, would you be my best man? Uh, He said, I would have asked Jimmy, uh, since he's always been like a little brother to me, uh, but obviously he can't do it, and I would love to have you. And I said, I'd be honored to do it. But I said, John, you know, if, if I'm standing there as your best man, Jimmy's gonna be front and center at your at your wedding and he goes that's why i'm asking you so that is just so awesome look how far you've come right (laughs) (laughs) um but you know so now you know it's a it's like a couple weeks before the wedding and i'm I'm, i got to come up with my best man speech right so and it's got to be good and i'm thinking you know what would jimmy say um uh and hillary um and I'm asking her. I'm asking her for help. And I'm asking Brittany for help. I'm asking Jimmy for help. Um, so Hillary, two weeks before the, the, the wedding, goes into a file cabinet that she hasn't been into in years because that file cabinet's like Superman kryptonite for her. It contains all of this stuff that's Jimmy, you know, his report cards, his papers, his cards he wrote to her. But she got a shove 
she said. It was not a message. It wasn't a push. It was a shove from Jimmy Mm. telling her to go in there. So she starts going through, and she's looking through things, and she finds this letter, another letter. It was a recommendation letter (laughs) that Jimmy wrote for John in 2001 as part of John's application to get into Brown University. And it was filled of everything we wanted to say. Jimmy's talking about how he's always looked up to John. You've always been my big brother. You've helped me out of jams. You know, you were such a leader, a scholar, blah. I mean, it was beautiful. So I said, thank you, Jimmy. And Brittany and, and I just that. have to stop there a second, Casey, yeah. just so everybody understands. That's not luck. That is your son still right here, part of your life. You asked him for help. And the best part is Hillary got that shove and acted on it. That's what it no takes. No question. No question. I mean, it was so it was so obvious, so clear to all of us that he said, hey, I'm right here, you know, uh, and I'm going to be involved in this. You know, Kay, mm-hmm. Dad – yeah, you're standing in my shoes, but I'm I'm the best man, not you. So, <laughs> so Brittany read that um, that message or the the letter at, as part of the toast that I gave. Um, and after you know the speeches and everything, and we were at the bar, a guy comes up to me, and he's a young guy, you know, early thirties, tall, good looking guy, and he said, "Mr. Gaunt, my name is Henry Armstrong," and I was so moved by you know, your words on multiple levels. Hillary, by this time, comes up to my side, and and uh, I said, Hillary, this is Henry Armstrong. Hillary looks at him. Tears are erupting from her eyes. She said, the Henry Armstrong? Can I give you a hug? And they hug like there's no tomorrow. And then it dawned on me. Henry Armstrong was the last guy that Jimmy saw alive. Oh, my. That's the house he stayed in after they had partied all night, and that's the house he left to try and walk. And we had not heard from Henry eight years, nine years after Jimmy's death. We had not heard from Henry, and we had not reached out to Henry. Um, Hmm. And we spent a lot of time talking with Henry that night, and he was carrying a lot of guilt, a lot of what-ifs, you know, what could I have done? And so it, it was dawned on us right then well yeah jimmy was supposed to give this toast but he was also setting this up so we could meet and heal and bring healing to henry who'd been suffering for so long um and then that whole night other friends of jimmy came up to me and just unloaded with grief and emotion and love for jimmy guys we'd never heard from Okay, mm-hmm. Jimmy orchestrated the whole darn thing. There's no and doubt. that's kind of what he does. He's 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 a playwright, and he <laughs> and he orchestrates these things with multiple characters and subplots and and <laughs> layers of purpose uh, that just blow us away. Wow, that's fantastic. Now you talk about how Jimmy's helping heal people here. But I believe you have some examples, if you'd share one, of how we can heal those across the veil. And you learned that through your connection with Jimmy. I did. Um, and it really started with, um, uh, as I said, the letter that I got from my dad. And um, 
before that, I, I, as far as I was concerned, my relationship with my dad was completely broken. But um, that door opened, and walls that I had re- erected uh, to keep my dad away from me and my memory began to come down. And so I did a number of things. I wrote a, a, a very extensive story about my dad, particularly his early years. Uh, his heroic achievements during World War II, put that up on our website. I wrote letters to my dad, forgiving him, telling him how much I loved him. And um, I shared all this, including the story of the letter, with my family and extended family and friends. And we began to talk about my dad like we'd never done before. And we brought my dad into the light, you know, instead of keeping him in this dark basement. Yeah. Um, and I started to have really good dreams about my dad. Before my dad, the dreams I had about my dad were creepy. Like he would just show up at our house in, in Chicago and wouldn't say a word. He would just be working on something, then he'd disappear. But now my dreams, I'm talking to him, I'm hugging him, we're laughing, he's looking good. And then a year and a half before, a year and a half ago, I got an email from a rabbi in New York who had just learned that our son Jimmy had died. She met Jimmy one time in Poland at a retreat that my brother, um, who's a, a, Zen, uh, a Zen Buddhist master teacher, he holds on an annual basis these retreats to Auschwitz-Birkenau, the death camps, to bear witness to horrible things that man continues to do to man. And that's where the rabbi met Jimmy. Uh, and she had also read the story of the letter from my dad, and mm-hmm. she had this observation. She said, tragic death can lead to healing and mending relationships across lifetimes and generations. And she said, example number one, your son, your father, and you. And I said, yeah, you know, I think I am helping my dad, but how do I know? Um, and then in February of this year, I had a reading with Chris Lynn. She's also known as the Blue Gene Mystic, which I was telling Suzanne at the break. Uh, Chris studied under Suzanne and thinks very highly of her. And this was the first mediumship reading I'd had with Chris. Um, and after Jimmy came through and, and my grandmother, my dad came through. And this is the first time my dad's ever come through in a reading. And Chris is saying... Um, uh, I have a father figure here, and he's nodding his head, and he's just so grateful, so grateful. And I just know instantaneous, instantaneously it's my dad. I start crying. Uh, and um, Chris says, he is so grateful because you helped him heal. You helped him heal over there. And Chris then says, I had no idea we could do that, uh, that you know, that we can help them. I always thought that they have their helpers over there. We don't, you know, need to help them. But your dad's showing me that what we do here is helping them over there. And he went on to say, he said, I've got my heart back. I have my heart back. And I know Mm -hmm. how hard my choice was for you, his suicide. But I'm so grateful that you didn't abandon me. Wow. You know, Casey, my, the class I teach in person is called Serving Spirit, and it's one of the first things I tell people, my students, is that we serve those who no longer have a voice. We give them a chance to say, I'm sorry, and yeah. to ask for forgiveness. So absolutely, it goes both ways, and it's just yeah. beautiful validation you got of the efforts that you made and how they helped your dad. So thank you for sharing that. 
Oh, sure. No, it, it was it, it was so gratifying for me because you know I had this sense that I was helping him, but to have him confirm it like he did, fabulous. Um, yeah, fabulous. Yeah. And you mentioned dreams there, and your dreams being a little bit upsetting at a time, and then changing. But Jimmy has come through dreams, I understand. He has, um, and um, the one in particular. It, this was um, uh, about a year and a half after he died, and um, he came through in a dream to, uh, for Brittany, and, and Brittany described it. Um, Jimmy was dressed up in his little league uniform, um, probably 10 or 11 years old, and he tells her, he says, Britt, you're pregnant, <laughs> and it's a boy. And oh, wakes up, she bolts out of bed. Um, and she, they had been trying, and so she takes her you know, home pregnancy test, and sure enough, she's pregnant. Mm-hmm. And four months later, we were all together um, uh, for her sonogram, and the nurse is you know, moving the stick around, and she goes, well, you ready? It's a boy. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, Jimmy's also come through to um, – his uh, nephews. Um, uh, Wyatt is the is our oldest grandson, but when he was like three or four years old, um, uh, Wyatt would come into his mom's room, Brittany's room, and said, "Mom, um, can I sleep with you?" And Brittany would go, "Well, sure. What's what's going on?" He finally admitted. He said, "Well, there's a man that comes into my room, mm-hmm. um, and he stands by my bed, and he just smiles." Uh, and Brittany said, well, does he say anything? No, he just smiles. Hmm. And Brittany said, well, do you know who it is? And Wyatt says, it's this guy. And she oh. points at a picture of Jimmy. I love these stories. I can never hear them too often. <laughs> <I know. laughs> That's so, so You know, he wanted, he's looking after his nephews um, as he continues to look after all of us and check in and um, – and just make sure that that we're okay, and and letting us know that he's okay, and and doing his thing. Um, and he always, when he comes to a reading, he always is so complimentary of me. And he said, "Dad, I I'm just so proud of you. You know, all that you're doing, all that you're writing, you know, and helping these other parents." Um, and in the this this is kind of interesting. In the reading with Chris Lynn, Jimmy came through and he showed Chris a microphone. And he was saying, you got to do more. You got to get out there more. You got to talk to more people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Jimmy orchestrated this uh, this conversation we're having right now, Suzanne. Fantastic. That's great. <laughs> now, speaking of talking to people, you know, we talked in the first half hour that at first you couldn't talk to others who had uh, a, a loved one pass to the other right. side. But later on in, in your book, you talk about how actually you gathered together with a group of people in the same situation and you call the group the fraternity, your brothers. Yes. Yeah. My brothers and lost. Um, so in, um, 2013, and this is kind of the, one of the points that I make in the book, and I'm going to, it'll, it'll be a featured point in the, in, in the book I'm working on right now. And that is, you know, we hope that those of us, um, you know, in this situation, we hope we get to a point where we can begin to help others. 
um, you know, that's part of the evolution. Some it happens, you know, early, some a little later. But it was for me, it was five years uh, where I could really felt where I really felt I could begin to help others sit across from, you know, parents and companion them and, and not only share stories, but also give some, you know, advice and things like that. So we started. I started with two other dads, um, the fraternity in San Diego, um, and uh, we've grown to over 25, and we meet regularly, usually every two or three months, Um, Mm -hmm. and this is the opportunity for, you know, the dads to share stories, talk about their kids, and and even more important, uh, share these stories of these incredible experiences and messages that they're getting from their kids that they can't share with anybody else because, you know, others don't get it or they'll think I'm crazy or what have you. And so it's just a a, a wonderful door opener and uh, way for dads to really talk about the things that, you know, they just can't talk with anybody else about. And, uh, and, and and what a difference from the years, the decades of not talking about your dad's yeah. passing, just sh- just shutting the door, shutting it down. And this right. is why groups like Helping Parents Heal, those of you who are listening that are saying, well, how do I get a fraternity or a group like that? HelpingParentsHeal.org is a beautiful, beautiful resource mm-hmm. for that kind of gathering. And they meet online if there's no group near you. What is the tribe? I understand that's a similar group. Yeah, it's similar. So um, – um, when um, uh, after we started the website in 2011 um, uh, and started the fraternity, there were a group of, of parents and um, and others that uh, I was communicating with regularly, sharing s- stories, sharing things that I had found or people had sent to me. Um, and so in addition to the website, I decided to start what I call the tribe. And um, it's a little more intimate than the website, so I'll send out stories. Um, I sent out one recently about a, a very amazing connection involving a good friend of mine who uh, just died of pancreatic cancer a month ago. And um, then this, you know, it's an opportunity. It's almost like a blog, but it's an opportunity for people to comment um, and, and reach back. And we've got about 130 people in the tribe. Wow. Um, and it's really people that have, you know, as as we learn, you know, through our grief and our healing process, we have to kind of build a tribe because um, those that we thought were always there for us, they may not be there anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And you also want to, you know, you, we also find ourselves being connected and meeting other people in similar circumstances that we can help, we can help one another. And um, so, yeah, that's the tribe. And I try and send out something at least once a week uh, to stay in touch with them. And I get some beautiful things from, from the tribe members to share as well. That's lovely. And your website, you've mentioned it several times, writemesomethingbeautiful.com. I have a feeling you do that in conjunction with Jimmy, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, in fact, yeah, um, uh, <laughs> those words were the last words he spoke to his good friend Eric um, uh, when they were having uh, dinner at a Mexican restaurant. And Eric was a budding writer, and Jimmy just said, Hey, Eric, write me something beautiful and send it to me. Oh, man. Um, and Eric, uh, when he got up in front of the 1,000 people at Jimmy's memorial service, 
Eric said, you know, Jimmy, I'm sorry I didn't get to write you something beautiful before you passed, but I hope what I read today you'll accept in in uh, in lieu of that. And it was extraordinary. Oh my God! So that's Beautiful. that's where the website title came from. I love it, and you and you co he co-wrote your book with you. The one, the suffering is the only honest work. The title feels a little bit of a downer, but it, it's something that Jimmy wrote. So you're yeah, honoring him with that, correct? I am. I am. It's uh, uh, he after he ran the uh, 2007 Los Angeles Marathon, he wrote a poem, and that's the title of the poem. And it's a very powerful poem. It's right. He's writing about just the agony, the challenges of running a marathon, finishing a marathon, hitting a wall. Uh, doubt is it a bad idea. Sounds like life. It is. And then yeah. he finishes the poem with. Um, this this trail or this death is not even a trailhead in the endless loop through ourselves. And when my body is lying flat in the tall grass, the rest of me is running up the hill. Mm. So he, he was very Buddhist, too. Uh, but what Jimmy is saying is, hey, look, um, you know, this isn't our, my first ride. Uh, I'm coming back. We all come back. We all are learning. And um, it's work. You know, it's work. And that suffering is just part of life. Um, there's also joy. There's happiness. There's love. But suffering's part of it. That's, That's true. how we learn. Yeah. Yeah. Sigh. However, I, I love in your book, we have just a minute to go here, you wrote, you write, so often we dismiss the interconnectedness of humanity, and we have these opportunities and moments at our fingertips to connect with others. You and I have both had children pass suddenly, unexpectedly, and, you know, with these, you think, you know, did we say everything we wanted to say? Could you just say something for for everybody listening as we wrap this up about the interconnectedness and any words of advice? The, um, um, we're one. Um, there, there is no this side or the other side. I think the veil is really, um, there is no veil. It's really our inability to see. Um, <laughs> our brains aren't big enough. Our consciousness isn't big enough. But the fact is that when we talk about our loved one or to a loved one, they hear us. When they talk, you know, they're reaching through to us. They are right here. And uh, and we, Jim, that, Casey, that is the most perfect way. And unfortunately, we're out of town, time. But that, what you just said, it's our inability to see, but just trust that they're here. And you've helped us to do that today. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Suzanne. Thank you, everybody. I really appreciate having the opportunity. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you looking for help on your path to healing? I'm Lisa Campion. I'm a psychic, Reiki master, teacher, and energy healer. On my podcast, The Miracle of Healing, I'm going to help you on your healing path. 
Listen to conversations with leading teachers in energy medicine, quantum healing, and people who have recovered from loss and illness. Whether it's to take care of your own healing or to help other people, this is the podcast for you right here on mindbodyspirit.fm.